You are listening to Believe, Strive, Achieve, Endurance Podcast with Diogo Custodio. If this is your first time listening, then thanks so much for coming. Get ready and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Believe, Strive, Achieve, Endurance Podcast. My name is Diogo. Today, we are recovering the coaches on the couch from the last 30th of March, where Coach Philip and Coach Alan had two very special guests discussing the balance of women in endurance sports. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Have fun. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good morning if you're based in the States. Um, I'm here today on the Coaches on the Couch, and we're going to be talking to you about the balance of uh, women in endurance sport and fundamentally what can we do about uh, it as well. So before we go uh, into the whole uh, detail, I'm just going to introduce you to our two guests uh, today. We've got Do Dr. Lisa Ingerfield, who's an avid endurance triathlete, or athlete even, running and triathlon, uh, a coach at Tri to Defy based in Denver, Colorado. So she's definitely in the good morning uh, side of things. She's also the co-founder of Outspoken, the Women Triathlon Summit, and host of their podcast, Unfazed. Lisa is a co-owner of Shift Sports, who helped to organize, help organizations sorry, improve their reach and profitability through practices designed to increase diversity in both organizational culture and also the clientele which they have. In her spare time, uh, she also works as a consultant for the criminal justice department and uh, around ending interpersonal violence. Um, so welcome, uh, Lisa. Thank you very much Thanks. for joining us. And we also have Katie Huey, who recently won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Unsung Hero Award uh, for London in 2018, uh, in December 2018, after funding Hackney Laters Football Club, uh, which brings girls and women together to play and develop their football skills, which was a, an area which she recognised was lacking at the time uh, when a few people came up to her and asked for some help uh, in doing a bit of football. Um, it began with five members and now boasts over 500, I'm told today, uh, and has sister clubs around London. And then I see as well one in Manchester just launched recently, Katie. Yeah, we launched Manchester Laces this week. There we go. So another one as well. So congratulations there. Katie is also on the global board of Park Run and uh, when she has some spare time, uh, also races in triathlons. And then we also have myself and Alan. So welcome, Katie and Alan as well. So I think we want to start off and kind of have a bit of a, a conversation, really. Uh, it fell really nicely that we planned this um, conversation prior to the article coming out, but the independent um, newspaper launched uh, an article about two weeks ago saying that um, you know there is a perfect sport which is triathlon because that's totally balanced um, and fair and there's definitely some points in that article um, which are worth highlighting you know, triathlon does seem to have great things around uh, equal prize money um, it is run by a woman uh, in the ITU and it is um, uh, now with the PTO kind of fighting for um, maternity pay as well and equal pay but is the sport a triathlon? Let's go for triathlon first. Is it actually uh, an equal sport? And is it sort of a paragon and could, should be put onto that pedestal? Lisa, should we start with you? Sure. Um, <clears throat> big question, and it's a bit complicated because I think that um, triathletes like to think of triathlon as equal because of that prize money piece but I feel like that is not um the whole story it's really easy to stop there because so many sports do not have equal prize money right folks are like well we're done in triathlon um but really when we look at attendance 
participation, sustained participation, right? Not just doing one triathlon and then piecing out. Um, we see that, you know, overall men still have the lion's share of um, participation and then particularly white men. And then when we think about women, we have to think about um, not just white women, we have to think about women of color, we have to think about women with disabilities. And so um, when you start to look at all those nuances, then prize money at the professional level being equal doesn't necessarily represent equity in the sport. And equity and equality are different, right? So like as a woman who's experienced marginalization, you know, since birth, right? Because women are um, oppressed in relation to men, like my starting line is further back than you. So even if you give me equal pay, like I'm still behind you, right? As a guy, because um, I have further to go because I've been held back by systems of oppression um, that favor men over women. So I think that we really just need to have a more nuanced conversation that recognizes that historical context and how, you know, how that brings us to today. So I, I guess, um... Alan, you've sort of seen seen the sport change um, over the time that you've been coaching. But is, is there, Alan, you were sort of talking about maybe the, the history of triathlon. I mean, triathlon itself is quite a young sport. Um, so does, I mean, Alan, do you want to sort of talk a little bit about the kind of the history of the sport and how kind of women have been involved for a while? Uh, yeah, I think the, as Lisa mentioned there, I think the historical context and the nuance of it all is is really important to the conversation. And also... I, for me, I think it's always really important to try and understand those differences in equality and equity. Like I always fall on a quick Google and check myself because the visual representation of the people standing behind the, behind the fence is, is really useful to try and, to try and get that across. Um, I'll, I'll uh, maybe leave that to uh, somebody who's a bit better able to get that across than I am. Um, but yeah, obviously, in terms of the context of the triathlon, uh, this is something like when I was presenting with the questions and the thoughts of this, I went back and look, looked at because I think there's a difference between that historical context, but also just really, I think the article, and I, I must admit, I've not read it, that looks at the like where we are in the present and doesn't particularly consider the context or the starting point, which is what Lisa's getting at there. But in terms of the, like the history of triathlon, it's really interesting in the part of this wider conversation that we're having today with other sports, that those sports are very different, marathon running being one of, one of those. Um, but obviously with the start of triathlon uh, in terms of, you know, I think, you know, what was the start of triathlon? But we'll go, we'll go with uh, Mission Bay kind of um, theory on that in terms of there being, uh, I believe, athletes of both genders um, taking part in that event. Um, John and Judy Collins, who sort of started up Ironman, were participants in that event, I believe. And then also then went on to be obviously involved in the development of Ironman. And I think there wasn't a female finisher for the first Ironman in 1978, but Lynn Lemaire did in 1979. And when you compare that to the marathon, that's a huge difference. So marathon running through my quick googling uh first marathon 1896 and a founding event of the modern olympics and obviously still in 1967 uh i forget her name now what did i write down the first female who was getting pushed around at the boston marathon but it wasn't until 
you know, five years later, there was an official entry for women. Obviously, there's a huge gap of 76 years there compared to the one year in triathlon. So that perhaps gives some context to the differences there. And I guess one of the, the big sports in terms of differences, uh, Katie, would be football. And from your position, being involved in two very different sports, clearly you had to go your own way and make your own club, plural now. You know, just to make it happen so that there was something for women in the sport. Um, you know, how do you look at it from that outsider, but also insider's view in terms of the sport of triathlon? I think um, there's, there's a few things. But the first is if we look kind of what both Alan and Lisa were saying about like the history and looking at equality versus equity and how sports evolve, I think the wider social determinants of like a gender-based role have influenced how, how so many women and girls experience sport. So if I'm looking at football, uh, the women playing football in the UK was banned for 50 years. Like the governing body was like, women can't play football. And that's quite similar, I think, to the marathon journey of women can't participate yeah. in this marathon. Like everyone's seen that narrative. And so like, although like football is different to triathlon and triathlon is a young sport and started out in that kind of equal footing or deliberate trying to be equal. I think there still are those wider social determinants of um, gender-based roles in sport and the barriers that are stopping people. So in football, um, I set up my own club this 10 years ago and we quickly grew into three, we're now four. But even to this day, people don't like the fact that we are a girls only club. And people don't like the fact that we have found our own funding and are able to be sustainable because they really want to pull us in to the governing body because they really want us to be on a talent pathway. And we're trying to say like sport is for sport. And if our girls go on to become elite athletes, amazing. We're there to help them on the journey and we're qualified to get them there, but they should be able to have an exit path. They should be able to get there. And it's obviously one of those sports that doesn't have equal prize money on any level. But I think it's very similar. Uh, there's a similar analogy across triathlon to football and in other sports is even with the best intentions and even if you design a system, you are still up against so many societal barriers that are saying you might not have the spare time to be able to train the way that you need to because of the expectations that are put on you and your job or in your family life. You might not be able to have the same access or transportation to get to the place that you need to. And you also have that pressure of cultural norms like that woman running the marathon being pushed around of like you shouldn't be here it's the same with access to football pitches it's the same in some instances I think with triathlon if you can't see lots of women competing you might not see that as a space for you so I guess one of the big um questions to go back to then is is the article fair it, like it, i mean it's obviously trying to make the point um that it's you know it's, it's better than other sports but kind of it's labeling itself as kind of it is the perfect answer um and i'm sort of hearing, hearing what i'm saying and saying it's 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 a step in the right direction but it's it's definitely not there yet uh, and nowhere near but i mean is that a fair analysis based on what we've all just said I feel like the intentions are right and but but I also think that it's not as fair because we're thinking about it in terms of um I think we can't just talk about it in terms of the one dimension of like women and women participating women getting prize money it's very intersectional so 
it's, it's also really like, in theory, being able to swim and run, you don't need any money. When we start talking about bike or kit, then you're like, oh, do you, like, does the sport ap appeal to a certain demographic of society? And then you're going, a lot of triathlons, a lot of triathletes are white middle-class participants, including women. And then that's where I think you design it with the right intentions, but you still have not, in it. your demographic is very limited. Yeah, I would definitely agree with Katie there that, I mean, triathlon, it's not just a little or a lot. It's like predominantly white <laughs> and middle class. I mean, in the US, I think it's less than 1% African-American participation and there's still not an African-American woman professional triathlete in the United States. Um, you know, and that's, that's a problem. That's not because their African-American people do not want to do triathlon, right? That's because the system of triathlon was not set up to support a diverse set of people, right? It was created by white people. And so white people with their white people glasses created a white people system. And that's not malicious necessarily, right? It's just kind of how it, how it happens. And that's true of many systems, um, in our society from sport to politics. So, um, I do think that the intersectional piece is really important. When we talk about women, we have to talk about women who experience, who have different identities. And then the cost is such a big deal. Um, you know, and women earn less on the dollar or the pound than um, men, right? So they have less access to disposable funds. To Katie's point that they're still, even in 2021, the primary um, caregivers, whether that's for young people or older adults, that still falls largely on their shoulders. And then if we think about the pandemic, women have been disproportionately affected in terms of their, um, their time in employment. So women have lost more jobs than men in the pandemic. And some um, experts are saying that to gain that back, it's gonna take decades, right? Because it's taken decades to get to the point where women um, have some kind of representation in employment spheres and that all just collapsed for the pandemic. So then how exactly are we gonna encourage women to participate in not only triathlon, but other sports when they don't have the free time, they don't have the money, Right. And there's no good childcare, at least in the United States, childcare is appalling. Right. It's a little different in the United Kingdom. Um, and then that's not even, you know, women who don't have kids still struggle. Right. Because of these other burdens that Katie identified. And then when we break that down by race, we break that down by class, we break that down by ability. Right. It just gets harder and harder. So should we really be looking then when I mean that article, as we said, it, it was a good with good intentions. And, and clearly it's, it's a nice thing to hold on to. I, we have to look at the age group, but it's not the professionals to really have an understanding of whether or not the the sport is actually fair uh, on on both uh, both sexes, and 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 actually able to to say, yeah, this is the perfect sport. Is when you start looking into the age group um, barriers rather than the professionals. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think fair, right? Like even the term fair, we have to think about who's determining what is fair, who's writing the rules about fairness. I mean, the NCAA, I don't know if you know about this, if it's made it news in the United Kingdom, but the NCAA, which I don't remember what that stands for, but it's college what, what, sports. <laughs> right, okay. There's there's the basketball 
um, finals that are happening, right? Like uh, March Madness is what it's called. And there's women and there's men, teams, right? And men get all of the money. They get all of the exposure. And it recently blew up on social media and bigger than that now where a young um, woman who's part of one of the basketball teams showed their training facilities, which was basically a rack of weights as compared to the men's training facilities that had like an entire gym, like a school gym full of weights and training, right? And the NCAA said it was because of space issues, which it clearly wasn't because she also demonstrated how much space was available that could be used for the women's um, training facilities. So it's, you know, it's just this, it's, it's endemic to sport that um, women are perceived to be less interesting, less valuable. They won't bring in as much money. I mean, we see that with soccer, with football, right? I mean, the US women's soccer team is amazing and they are struggling to get equal pay and prize money despite the fact that the men's soccer team is absolutely atrocious. So, I don't know. sorry, this is what I'm gonna, I could get on my soapbox here, so. No, no, I was gonna bring that in actually, because the, the you, the US football, the women's football team was, um, I mean, they went up there and, and made a real stand and it was a big thing around the, um, uh, it wasn't in the it was the World Cup, it wasn't, Katie, you might know more and jump in, so please do, but they, they were kind of making a real statement there and. I think they, you know, they tried they to sue them, yeah, they sued their governing body for discrimination because they bring in more crowds, more money, more participation. They, more rights, more broadcast, everything. Yet for some reason, the men's team was being paid more, but they weren't qualifying for anything. And um, that that is um, like one example, I think, of many uh, women's teams, like the NCAA example, where they're trying to turn the head and say, actually, um, why hasn't anyone thought this through? Like in football, I will go and play lots of games or I'll take my teams to play games. And there are legit no female changing rooms. They've just never designed football grounds to have female changing rooms because football wasn't allowed for women. And this is now like, we'll go places and there's nowhere for us to change. But to your point, Phil, about like looking at age groupers and fairness, I think something I see so often, and I'd love to hear if like, Lisa, you see this too, but people say that there just aren't enough women interested in the sport or they're not enough. Like this year we had 5% more participation because uh, we deliberately targeted uh, women or we deliberately targeted people from marginalized backgrounds. And that's something that I struggle to sit with because um, like we are oversubscribed in my football club. We don't have the capacity to expand, but everyone, even to this day, when I meet people, they go, women don't really want to play football. It's not, they don't want to play. It's there's barriers to entry. So those barriers to entry, I think will also apply to people wanting to become age groupers, but it hasn't been designed in a way that's worked out what those barriers are. So why they're not in the sport. So all the statistics we see about like, there's 60% less participation of girls and women in this sport. It's definitely not because they don't want to. Yeah, like 120% agree with that. That's the same issue here in the United States, you know, and I think about, I mean, I'm not an expert in this specifically, but girls um, coming up through puberty, they experience, um, well, a lot of social pressure around their body um, as it develops. They also experience um, a shift in their ability, um, their speed, right? So a lot of young girls drop out of sport because they're not encouraged to stay in and they get demotivated. And it's just, you just kind of have to hang on through puberty, but they're not getting coached. They're not getting supported with that. So then you have this massive drop-off kind of at that like 11 to 14 year old 
for girls that boys don't see. And then boys are routinely also seeing themselves reflected in local clubs all the way up to professional sports. Um, and, you know, and then it comes back to Katie's point around, well, girls and women just don't want to play sport. And that's just BS. Like that's just complete BS. Right. Um, that's a, that's an excuse to try it because it's too, because it is perceived as too hard to really do the work to open up sport to folks of all genders. I do think the one place that, uh, the one thing I love about triathlon is like, you can do it. I can be on the, the same start line as my husband and I can, I do the same distance as him. And something that I really struggle with both when like they try to tweak the rules in football of, oh, should we have smaller nets for women or should the game be less time? Or in the cross country championships here in the UK where they're like, oh, these 13 year old girls can't run the same as 13 year old boys. It's the, the fairness in triathlon, I think comes from the standardization and like the, the amalgamation of everyone. Whereas I think a lot of sports by design try so hard to segment by gender. So, yeah, thanks. Uh, so like we, I think it's really important with these conversations to like stay on point. And I think this idea of fairness, but I think in terms of fairness about what we're discussing, what we're assessing and what we're bringing into the conversation is really important. So like that historical content, are we talking about the historical context or are we assessing what's going on in the present or like, are we assessing societal norms or like, you know, because the, the the whole society construct, blimey, like, like we were saying before we got sort of got going, if we started to drag that in, we'd be here forever. But it all ends up very complex and it all ends up quite noisy in terms of the conversation for me. And I, I think what Lisa said last in terms of like, just flagging up in terms of the BS, especially with junior female athletes is is really important. I think that Just lost you there, I'm gonna be there. Have you guys lost Alan? Because I can't hear him very well. Okay, good. <laughs> Not just me. Sorry, Alan, we just lost you there. Do you want to go again? Uh, I was just saying it might be overambitious to to solve society's issues, but with junior athletes, I've definitely experienced that at a high performance level, there is that support there for juniors that obviously going through puberty and the everything that comes with that in terms of the challenges for female athletes but I don't think in the mainstream world that support there is for girls it's just not there it just doesn't exist and drop out in terms of participation is huge I think the coach has such an important role to play in that dropout and having worked with teenage girls for the last 13 years in sport like when you're coming at it from a coaching perspective where you know like all of these barriers exist for them but if your goal is to help develop them as a person and help keep them in the sport that might look different in some years for their training and progression to where they get to but when they turn 18 and they decide if they want to go pro or they turn 18 and they decide actually I just want to continue with sport like it feels like everything's better off because they've had that consistency on their journey. And that's something that um, I think a lot about in sport. I've got friends who uh, say that they treat their coaches like they're their counselors. But I think in some ways they've like, the coach has such an important role in keeping people in 
at every level, but I think in that critical age, especially in that teenage drop-off, especially with girls. So that's something I was going to bring in because, I mean, I, I raised it as a, as a stat, but I think women um, are less active than men. Uh, and 60% of men don't meet the recommended daily amount of exercise. Um, and, and I'll be saying that, that, going back to what Lisa said, is, is that just the case of at puberty, people don't know what they're doing with managing a, a girl through puberty and sport. And so they drop out with a combination of social norms. Um, I mean, I could get Alan on one of Alan's rants around um, social media if we really wanted to. I don't know if you've got quite enough time. Uh, but, you know, that, that kind of that drop off is happening there, which then leads into adult life, because there is no matter how you try and put it. I agree with you. There is there are the people who want to do the sport, but there's also a huge dropout of people who no matter how much, especially endurance sports, which look quite kind of I mean you've got to be a little bit weird to say, I'm going to go run, I know, 50K or something like that. I'm going to do a, you know, a long triathlon, a sprint distance triathlon. Okay, how long will that take me? About two hours. Well, hang on a second. You know, you've got to be a little bit, um, I guess, different to, to choose to do something like that at, at some level. Um, but yeah, I mean, how, how much is this sort of a problem which starts and then no matter how much a sport can do is, is, is based on kind of, it's almost predetermined about 20 years ago before someone gets anywhere near the age of, I guess, where most age groupers might be thinking about doing endurance sports. I think there's mechanisms to keep people in. I think you'll naturally see that drop off, but I think there are a lot of examples of, um, if you look at like physical education in schools, for example, like in countries where it's mandatory throughout all of teenage years, um, and it's like a credit, like I grew up in Canada, you have to take PE until you're 18. By default, you're doing that, or you're not graduating from high school. Whereas I know other countries, it's just not um, part of it. But I think in the culture of um, like how we're treating sport and how we're allowing people to train, whether it's an extracurricular or whether it's in like school curriculum, I think has a, a huge impact on whether people stay within it because um it's a choice right like people want like you said like people need to want to be able to train and they want to be able to do it but I think they're more inclined if it is that consistent or it's something that they're already doing that's a good point it's definitely easier to, to keep doing something rather than restarting from scratch let's just say um so how important and um Lisa I'm sorry I've stolen this from your um uh, your website i think but you, you put on that the um the thing the the name which is that uh, the, the quote is numbers comprise only one component in successfully shifting culture they are not the finish line and i guess especially um, as myself you know that's something which i'd almost look at straight away you know we we looked the first thing i did when um everything uh, sort of started the conversations around black lives matter and diversity in sports uh, happened I was like okay well what what is that in in Britain what does that look like uh, is yeah around about the one percent of diverse um diverse ethnic backgrounds um the rest of it's all white middle class so you know clearly um I'm in the majority sense but the first thing I did was look to go and see what the numbers were so what's beyond the numbers 
Yeah, I mean, numbers are important, but if you don't shift the culture, then folks who experience marginalization in the world are not going to stay in the sport, right? So if you're um, an African-American or Black woman and you want to participate in triathlon specifically and you go there and then, um, you know, someone assumes you're a volunteer or you get stared at, right, because you're the only person of color, then you're probably not going to come back to a triathlon, right? So, I think about it. I used to work in higher education and um, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but in the US there's this movement around, it's not enough to just have students of color on campus if the campus is hostile to students of color, right? And they're experiencing microaggressions and racism and other forms of oppression while they're there, they're going to transport, they're going to leave. And that's not because they're not capable, that's because it's too stressful to be there. And I think about that same pattern in all forms of endurance sport because it just comes to, becomes too stressful because that day-to-day experience of microaggressions or comments or gaslighting or kind of the little things that you know build up over time it just become it just becomes not worth it you know so that's the that's the other side of the seesaw I guess is that yes numbers matter but if you don't shift the culture then that you're not going to change then they're not going to stay folks are not going to stay and because in triathlon it's predominantly white right so the experience doesn't feel uncomfortable for white people in triathlon because everyone looks like you so that's that's kind of what I'm getting at with that. Can I, can I ask with regards to triathlon? There's the there's obviously this number that we all know that's about seventy percent, thirty percent in terms of men and women participating. So, and we've had this article that says you know triathlon's fantastic, it's perfect. I'm not sure there's such thing as perfection, mm-hmm. especially in terms of the data, for all of the reasons you just said. These, I mean, Philip will tell you, I don't. numbers aren't everything is kind of my mantra but the um what are those you know because in my mind and I think it's fair to say that entry is open for triathlons and I'm talking very specifically about age group participation here Mm -hmm. it's an open participation what is it that results in there not being I know I'm going to contradict myself here but the numbers we would look for in terms of participation because the, ent- I mean, the entry's there. Anybody can click on it. Yeah, but just because, you know, it's that, what's that phrase around you can't drag a horse to water or something like that, right? Just because the yeah, yeah. Entry, entry is open, that doesn't mean yeah. to say people are going to flock to it, right? Particularly if you don't see yourself reflected, even at the age group level in triathlon or in any sport. And so then it comes back to what Katie and I were talking about earlier, which is those barriers that exist for women that don't exist for men in terms of access, right? So I can say, yeah, sure, my local triathlon, which in the United States is actually quite expensive now, um, but I don't have childcare um, or, you know, I don't have the money to buy a bike or I just don't have the free time to train, right? So their calculations that women are making that most men, not all are making, are not making. Um, So that's that's what I, I mean, that's, it's not all of it, but that's a piece of it, I think. Okay. And does childcare specifically apply so to single parents? Oh, I think it applies to dual parents and single parents. Okay. Like, so a guy who is a single parent who yeah. has two kids yeah. is probably having those same, same calculations, but sure. there are fewer of them, right? And also the earning power of a man is higher still. So okay. the access to disposable income 
is also more available. There are always exceptions to the rule, right? But yeah, sure. we're not talking about exceptions. We're talking about the rule. So I just wanted to me. say, when, sorry, Alan, when you were talking about like the entries there, anyone can come and participate. Something mm -hmm. that um, I've seen across loads of different registration processes. So uh, from my role at Parkrun, when people sign up to join a Parkrun, and when I look at laces and when someone signs up to come, it's the same premise of, hey, come join. Like in theory, anyone can come and do it. And I appreciate Parkrun is an endurance sport. It might be for some who are, you know, starting out. The people really want reassurance. So it's on average, it's 4.1 times someone from the laces team reassuring someone before they come. So we have to say to them, yep, don't worry about kit. Yep, don't worry about location. Yep, this, yep, that. People have, so, how much is it? Who's going to be there? People have so many questions before they click, I'm going to turn up. And it's really similar at Parkrun of like, what do I wear? Who's going to be there? And I think throw three sports into one. <laughs> it's like, what? It, what? <laughs> are, are you talking about that reassurance specifically for females? Uh, no, I'm talking about, in well, my experience in in football is only women. Yeah. Um, and my experience with parkrun is across the board. But the people who are more likely to ask those questions are people who have previously been inactive. Right, because they also don't see this because they don't see themselves represented, right? So then they then they think about, well, am I going to fit there? Are people going to make fun of me? What does it feel like? You know, like my brother does park run. He lives in Liverpool and his family do it. They do it every week. And I, when I was in England a couple of years ago, I did it um, and I was floored by how few women were there, floored. Like it was a big group of people, hundreds, and there were maybe 40 women like I mean I came eighth or something I mean that's ridiculous right like I mean certainly I had like more oxygen because I was at sea level yeah that helped but like I mean I just was absolutely it was amazing to me I couldn't believe it and in the U.S. that's totally different on the in a running race there's more women now that participate in running than men but we don't have a park run because people are always suspicious of runs that are free for some reason so I'm not sure why that is but um yeah I think the encouragement is really important because that sense of belonging is is what keeps people there. And if they don't see someone, then they need that external encouragement, whether that's from a friend, a race official, a coach, whatever, right? That And that repetitive encouragement is really important. And I guess it's also, I mean, triathlon itself, you, you spend most of your time in skin hugging equipment from a tri suit to swimming costume, um you know maybe you might have a baggy top to run in but certainly not on cycling because it's all so everything you know you you can absolutely see who you are so for anyone getting involved in the sport and i guess that goes male and female but certainly um where image is being kind of rammed down people's throat on social media triathlon's a horrible sport to go and do um endurance running is probably a little bit better although again this probably I mean, where you are, uh, Lisa, is definitely going to be slightly different, but um, definitely in the UK, it's, it's a very young sport. So even the photos of races are just going to be people who are veiny and muscly and looking like they're kind of a serious athlete. And it's never going to get anyone involved in, in doing endurance sports because it just looks like you have to be really serious. You know, you have to have the kit and everything else. And I mean, I guess, how does, how does, a, how does a sport, endurance sport, where ultimately you have to do a bunch of training. So you are going to probably change how you look a little bit 
get the message across that everyone starts and everyone i mean i i started swimming and i know most people didn't come to the sport as a triathlete and they've had a weakness and stuff but how can you help get that message across to um to anybody along with the kind of the barriers for women as well before that i always bang on about this but i imagine like if we're visualizing this i'm all for like mass participation sports because as soon as you increase that base that entry level of like get involved it's inclusive you're welcome try it out you can start to take it up to that professional elite level and i think there are some sports that um have a really great like base level depending on what country you're in but then i also think that there's as you move through like you have to have that wide base otherwise you're not going to get people in so if we're looking at triathlon we only ever see it's a young sport so we only ever see the pros and we think about the brownlees or we think about like really well-known age groupers but like where where are we seeing the people who are like in their local lido not even in a wetsuit being like i'm giving this a go and the more accessible you can make it especially and from a female perspective when we're talking about body image the more accessible you can make it from like however you market or pr that from an entry point then i think you can start to build that pyramid and you'll see a lot um greater uptake in participation Yeah, the marketing piece is really important. Shimano just released a short video. It's like 20 minutes long. It's called All Bikes All Bodies or All Bodies All Bikes. I can't remember which round it is, but it's basically um a short um interview kind of following these two women who self-identify as fat and they talk about um how they've been treated in terms of their um bike riding and um kind of growing up and being told that they can't be athletic it's quite a moving video um but it also it also kind of drums home that you don't have to look a certain way to be a cyclist you know um and because i think that we're just bombarded with that if you know to join alan on his soapbox around social media like i think that that's a huge piece of it um and the piece i was just talking about this um at the at a conference the other day where i was presenting um that if you get to, if you are at the point right where you say am i a runner am i a cyclist am i a this that or the other like the damage has already been done right because the fact that you're even to the point where you're asking that question means that there's been some stuff that's happened already that has led you to believe that you might not fit into that label so um i think that's important um like i i definitely when i started running i started running before i did triathlon i certainly struggled with like well am i a runner runner like do i run enough to be a runner right like so obviously i had received messages prior to that point about who is and is not a runner and i think that that's true across all sports and part of that is who do i see out there doing this sport right and so marketing becomes extraordinarily important friend of mine over here just to one last thing she did the london triathlon she's an african american woman and she followed their social media account in the weeks running up and um you know out of hundreds of posts around the london triathlon she said she saw one image of um a black athlete as she was getting ready to fly over to the uk to do that triathlon like that's a problem I know I was um certain side of photographer actually at Iron the Iron Man one of the, the sprint relays and he he was doing work for British Triathlon and his his brief was we need to get non white uh, and female athletes uh, and if you get both even better but that was his brief he said I don't we don't want any photos of 
white men because they have a whole bank of those and they just don't have enough um, of, of anybody else doing the sport. So it's already sort of said, sending the wrong image. And that was a few years ago, to be fair. But it's, um, I guess it, it's almost self-perpetuating as well, because on some somewhere you need to get them in beforehand to have the photos and then just have the same photo of one athlete who happens to be doing it and you do it 10 times and that just looks inauthentic as well. It does uh, a map. I was going to say, there's a massive element of chicken and egg in all of this, in every in every single different component. And it's there has to be, for me, I think there has to be a balance between build it and they will come kind of approach. But, and also just like, if it's a tricky tightrope that we're walking in some elements. For me, the thing that stands out is the role model side of things that's massively missing. And I come across that with the female athletes that I work with and friends over and over again for again with regards to the marketing i can remember a specific image uh, around some race events uh, there was advertising a world championship event and it was the the male version of the poster had the guy that won and the female version of the poster had a participant in the race and for me like that's kind of a, there's a bit of falseness there because actually the, there is the exercise participation that whole spectrum of taking part in the sport but Sometimes I think there's kind of mixed mixed purposes with some of the marketing that goes out. I think it's okay to say this is amazing high-class performance because there needs to be role models at that end of the spectrum. But then it's just doing so in an appropriate place. And I think some people's intent goes awry at times. And it, that, like you said, Philip, it's not authentic. I wanted to say about the social media part as well. So I think as a guy, sometimes for a lot of guys, it's easy to be defensive and be like, well, it's kind of our fault because, you know, we set up the sport or whatever, or historically. So we have some responsibility. But then I there's this kind of this trend around. There's obviously some aspects of social media where females may take advantage of the fact that they're female. And I think sometimes to the detriment of the whole situation play on that fact and for me like it's how like how do we educate girls to stay in the sport 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 in terms of participation but also maybe like how do we put it education in place to help them support like themselves in terms of participation i think that's a kind of an important aspect i don't know if i cut out then or not i'm just waffling ranting uh, <laughs> So are you sort of highlighting the point that um, in social media there can be a lot of objectification around physical, basically appearance yeah, and that goes think... for men and women, um, and that almost sends the wrong message around performance. And it's especially, I mean, surfing is the obvious conversation where you know the, some of the best surfers in the world um, were wearing wetsuits because they were doing big wave surfing, and the ones who were not and wearing tiny bikinis were yeah. on the huge sponsorship packages with all the main brands. It's just the lack of authenticity at levels. I think for me, it's quite a big issue, like where the, you know, people are putting up stuff and they like, oh yeah, I'm going out for a bike ride and it's a sunny day and it's actually five degrees and freezing outside, but they made a certain choice of clothes and then never gone on a bike ride. I don't know. I think it's really troubling to blame someone for their own oppression, right? So there's, there's a concept called internalized oppression. So if I hear as a young girl growing up yeah. over and over again, that the only thing that counts is my body, right? Then that's, that's then what I 
follow because I get rewarded for that. Like I think about when I was growing up and whenever I would only get compliments, like if I dressed a certain way or if I wore makeup, right? Or if I behaved in a certain way, that's when the compliments would come. So they're the only messages that you receive from your family, from your school, from TV, from wherever, right? Like you're bombarded with it. Then you get to a point where you you've internalized that message. And so then you just reproduce it, which then to your point just creates, continues the problem, right? And so- um, So my, it, my question, I guess my question there is like, how do we intervene? When mm-hmm. all of that has happened, how do we, how like, you know, I think it's easy in terms of the coaching and the dropout support of female athletes going through puberty. But for me, like to be able to intervene, at this stage and take any sort of action in order to encourage a change that's for me I see that as being really tricky I don't I don't know what your suggestion would be I think it's it's huge I mean I don't know Katie what you think but I you know to your point earlier you said it gets messy I think it is messy and it is complex and Mm -hmm. we can't shy away from that because I think that complexity has led us to this point in the first place so it's like a wholesale shift that needs to happen in multiple places in society but right like if you're a parent you know, when are you complimenting your child who's a girl versus when are you complimenting your child who's a boy? Like, what are the messages that you're sending, right? If you're a teacher in school, who are you praising and how are you doing it, right? Because all of those things add up over time. Um, and so it's it's kind of on all hands on deck, which I think can feel very overwhelming for people. And so then they just do this, right? But that is not going to solve the problem. I, if I... Um my day job is in advertising. And the thing I say all the time is we can convince people to smoke cigarettes, which we know will kill them, right? I I don't work for cigarette companies, but as an example, advertising can convince people to smoke, it can convince people to drink, it can convince all of these really bad, unhealthy, unsustainable behaviors, and it's so powerful. Yet no one's cracked how to flip that and go, actually, how can we address um, normalizing sport for women? How can we address normalizing marginalized groups getting into sport because you start to see it with some bigger brands but I think there is this um, you have to start at a place where you're you're showing people like that you can be an athlete and you don't have to be elite but you can just take part Lisa's point earlier about how long before she called herself a runner I've done a dozen triathlons and when Phil said I was a triathlete I was like no I'm not I'm not a triathlete I'm just someone that like enters races and like, again, I've done so many of them, but I would never call myself that, which is cr- like, maybe that's my own complex. But I think a lot of women share this as an identity crisis of that's not me. You, you, having seen how fast you were in certain aspects of doing triathlons, Katie, I'm, I'm, I'm calling it, you definitely are a triathlete. Um, <laughs> it's going on my Instagram bio. Yeah, you can Kidding. put it on your Instagram bio and everything else. <laughs> hashtag triathlete um the i think the um one thing which i, I want to go back to uh lisa which you picked up on i know we actually spoke um when we met uh, a while back was that kind of casual sexism in sport uh and that can be just through the language that a coach might have um but the really obvious one which you highlighted and i it went straight over my head i guess that's me being a bloke but um there was the ironman 70.3 world championships uh on a, I think it was on a Sunday for the for the men in France, and on the Saturday was the Ironman seventy point three women's world championships. 
And the question you asked was, why isn't it the men's world championships and the women's world championships? Why is one the world championships and one the women's world championships? And it's a really obvious point when once you've raised it, like there is no difference in there apart from the fact that one's just for women and that doesn't sort of sit right at all. And it's, it's that same, kind of, yeah, yeah sorry, go, go ahead. I was gonna say same with the World Cup, right? It's the World Cup and the Women's World Cup, right? Yeah, language matters. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess matters. Yeah, and I think the hardest. So I, I hadn't even picked that up. I think now I'm a lot more aware of potentially those sort of things. But I think one of the going back to Alan's question, I think, well, you know, what can we do? I think the first thing has to be start recognizing and identifying where there is those blatant, in many cases, quite often accidental. I don't think anyone kind of was sat there and sort of said, you know, what we'll do? We're going to absolutely discriminate against. The women athletes um again alan i know the poster you're meaning uh, you know when there was the winner of the the poster had the men's champion and then just a random uh, participant which is great but you know there's a, there's a clear decision there which just doesn't quite work in terms of equity and how are you supposed to build that um sort of role model approach um so how how important is that um identity of or awareness of um, casual sexism and, and I mean Katie how you're, you're involved in, in coaching a whole host of young female athletes how, how how much is your work almost repairing the damage which someone said about doing on a girl push-ups or something like that uh so much of what we do is advocacy so I this to Lisa's point this might seem really um insignificant but Foot, naming a football club here, the convention is you have the football club name and then it's ladies or the football club name and it's women. We're laces. What are laces? Are they shoelaces? <laughs> like we're deliberately a random word because like growing up, you'd have like the Tiger Cats or you'd have like the Argonauts. You'd have like random team names. And for us, it was so important that we weren't saying we are a ladies team. We are a football team. And there's, I think, deliberate design decisions that you can make and you can advocate for that. I get all the time, I'm good for a woman coach. Not I'm good, I'm a good coach. I'm good for a woman coach. And then I get asked, am I allowed to coach men? I've got the same, quali I had more qualifications to coach England than Phil Neville when he got the job. Like there's, there's so much, I think, that we have to point out and what we do on the advocacy side. Because like, like you said, Phil, people don't maliciously set out and go, this is a ladies club or this is a, um, a woman's qualification. But the minute you have these like casual sexism, microaggressions of you're good for a girl, you're a good player for a woman, you kind of go, no, I'm just a good player. Like I, they're distinctly average men <laughs> that I'm better than. And I feel like we need to normalize that and take those qualifiers of woman or girl out of any form of compliment to start. I guess going full circle, um, going back to what you said, triathlon is in many ways quite good, except for now the 70.3s are on different days. But you can stand on the start line, the same one as your husband, and whoever gets to the finish line first, thankfully, I don't do that anymore against Emma, although... Uh, maybe at this moment in time I have a slight opportunity but yeah um uh, yeah I mean it's, it's good because you can actually be good in your overall position and you can have a look at that um and I think that's sort of I guess full circle quite a nice thing around triathlon I guess looking at time as well I, I I do want to sort of see if we can put a bit of a positive thing what what is endurance sport doing um 
which is which is good. And actually, you know, we started off essentially slating um, an article, which ultimately was trying to say actually triathlon is doing a good thing. But endurance sports, you know, what are the positive experiences that you know you may have had or you're seeing happening, uh, or organisations stakeholders are doing to try and you know, really level up that um, I guess unfair playing field or imbalanced playing field. I know a lot of organizations um, who are deliberately trying to make places available to people and are actively recruiting people. And I guess this kind of falls on the equity side, but it's um, a lot of race series are saying, how can we uh, make space for people to come and really try to get people out? And I think that's like one positive step towards uh, getting people that way. I also think there's a lot of profiling of how successful women are in endurance sport, and I think that helps so much. Yeah, I mean, um, I think triathlon is doing okay, right? But I don't think okay is enough. So it's not that I want to blast the sport. Obviously, I coach it and participate in it, so I like it. Um, but I think we we get we just rest on our laurels a little bit. And that's, that's how the status quo is maintained. So, I mean, I'm definitely seeing, you know, in trail running, um, organizations are working to recruit um, more women. So for instance, like Leadville, which is a really famous uh, race series here in the US, it's based in Colorado. There's like the 100 mile mountain bike race, the 100 mile um, run race, right? Um, actually an English guy has won the um running race a few times so yay but um you know a friend of mine did the 50 mile silver rush mountain bike and i think that there were of x hundred participants 30 women and they didn't um proportionately address qualifications so if you got a certain it's either a certain time or you finished at a certain place you got qualification into the 100 mile and so that proportion was like, let's say like 200 to 30, right? And they didn't kind of say, all right, well, there are 30 women, but you're going to get 10 slots. There are, um, you know, 300 men or whatever, and you're going to get 10 slots. They said, well, because there are less women, you're going to get less slots. So all they did was just perpetuate the um, problem, right? But then I've seen races, other races do that differently, where they say, we know that there are less women doing this mountain bike race or this long trail race and we want them to come back and continue to participate so we're going to increase the number of slots that they get um, to balance out men and women in this next race right so that's happening so there's some awareness I think from at least like kind of these longer trail races that you see in the US I don't know how many of them exist in the UK but that's a really positive thing. It's intentional. It's thoughtful. It's like, I don't want to perpetuate the status quo. There's a race down in Colorado Springs. Um, that's like straight up Pikes Peak, I think. And the owner is a guy and he, um, he gave out prize money. He gave men prize money that was equivalent to the discrepancy of women's earnings. So women got like a hundred dollars say, and the men got 75, <laughs> as to demonstrate the problem, right? Because the guys were like all up in, ah, that's not fair, that's not fair, right? Which, we ran the same distance, okay? <laughs> right, right. But then, you know, well then, okay, 
you know, you realize that that's not fair and it doesn't feel good. Think about how women feel like in every other aspect of their life. So I thought that was really cool that the race director did that. So that's the kind of thing I'm seeing. That's, I think, I guess from my point of view, I think the conversation is coming around more. Uh, I know and we haven't touched on this at all, apart from maybe a small section around um, women's uh, girls rather going through sport and, and losing out when they hit puberty and kind of that drop off there. But I think the conversation now is starting to happen, even in just sort of hang on, are we training female athletes in the right sort of way? Should we be training them differently? How should we be training them differently, if at all? And, and I think, you know, some of these conversations, at least at the coaching level, um, are starting to raise big questions around how how the sport should maybe be set up and how training should even happen um which i guess is huge compared to where it was even i mean alan when you started coaching and doing coaching side of things you know it's a very different conversation now than sort of That's a few years, a few years night ago and day. night and day i mean for me like to build on lisa's comments there i think like going forward the question that i would like to know the answer is uh, you know they, those um those actions that you spoke about there lisa but are good on behalf of the race organizers but i think as a coach and as a participant as well i think it would be useful for people to sort of have an awareness of what they can do as well so th those those actions that they're taking the you know the, those those you know that extra five percent of encouragement or an action that you take that nudges the the sort of the ship in the direction of travel that we want it to go to make sure that things don't stay the same that they don't stay the status quo what are those things that we can do to just keep keep going on that trajectory i always say that um assume that you know nothing and i say this especially when i'm working with some of the women that I coach because I have no idea why they missed a session or why they didn't come to training or why they're not performing as they are and I think very often other coaches have made assumptions as to why those are and they start to build a trajectory or they start to build a plan but not fully taking into account all aspects of what that young woman's going through and I think to, I say to all of my coaches across the clubs that like don't assume you know things without confirming it because that's one step and one really practical thing you can do is like not judge or make an assumption. You're actually asking for that feedback and asking for what those reasons are of why things are the way they are. And then you can adapt their training. And this is, could be anything from, I have my period to, I need to look after someone to, I'm really not feeling this anymore. I don't like this sport. But those are all really practical things that as a coach you can address and adapt. Yeah, getting used to saying period, <laughs> right? And that that's a fact of life for young women all the way through, right? To menopause. And that affects the ability to train. I mean, I think women are also taught not to say it. Like it's, you know, it's just this taboo thing, but it absolutely affects training. So that's something that male coaches certainly can get more comfortable with but i would say that's also true for women coaches too um so yeah saying period a lot you'll just get used to it if you say it enough times <laughs> i think i've shocked my uh future sister-in-law a few too many times over a dinner table when we start having conversations around it my brother sat there going what are you guys doing <laughs> um but yeah i think i think you're right is that normalization of 
women in sport. Let's keep it really, really high level. Simply, it's, it's as simple as that. If, you, if you're going to normalize women in sport at the kind of all levels, and that's a fundamental part of it. Um, I, I want to say thank you very much to to both of you for joining us. Um, I think it, it is interesting. I'm as a, I guess, as a coach, but also as a business owner, quite aware of the fact that even now we have myself and Alan sat here um talking um but actually proudly we do have a fairly even representation of female coaches um but not necessarily at those higher levels of um of the more experienced levels of coaching so you know it's, it's an interesting thing when you look at role models and sort of how can we do more you know it has to start with you know coaches and other athletes and and bringing those up and and hopefully as a, as a company um but also as as a coach you know we we can do more and try and help um, gain more role models and get more females in positions to help inspire other athletes and, and kind of that starts being more normalized um, but a huge thank you to both of you for joining us um, if there was one thing that you could tell not a coach but an athlete um, how to sort of help encourage uh, people to come into the sport what would it be Lisa you're nodding so should we go for you Lisa <laughs> My mine would be um, not everyone's there to win. Yeah, that's kind of close. What I was going to say actually, because I just had again had this conversation with someone else that um, we don't assume that someone can't, and don't assume that their goal is to win, right? So it's kind of like both ends. I think when you're talking to your friends about participating, like the normalizing and that you know, you can do it. Anyone can. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you both very much for joining us. Um, Lisa, I hope you have a great day. <laughs> um, Katie, thank you very much for uh, sharing, sharing your time and also your, uh, your dashend with us as well. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, joining in. And so Alan, well. <laughs> thank you very much for your time as well. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having this conversation in a few years time where um, it's normal. It's, it's not a conversation to be had anymore. That would be an amazing place to be. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. The Believe, Strive, Achieve podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and show notes are found at trytrainingharder.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Try Training Harder. Thanks for listening.